Good morning. It's good to see you and be here with you this morning. I think this is my third or fourth time um, uh, to be here with you, and it is always a joy to make the trek and to see you and to be with you to worship, and uh, this morning's no uh, different. The text uh, that we will be considering is Luke 4. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Jesus, uh, this is a story that takes place soon after he developed his um, ministry, that he started his ministry. And in those early days, people didn't really know him, but they soon uh, became aware of who he was. And this is a story after he did a bit of ministry and was developing a reputation, and people were interested in who he was and what he was doing. And this is a story about him going home, going to the place he was from. So read with me. This is Luke 4, verses 21 through 30. And Jesus began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming out from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came across all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the days of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up, and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow, brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. And passing through their midst, he went away. This is God's word. I'm going to pray quickly. Father, um, Pray for the grace to see you in this story, in this moment. We are grateful that this interaction still speaks to us today, and we ask that you, by your spirit, would speak to us. Meet us where we are. I pray that today would be an encouragement to us, that we would be reminded that you are alive and well, that you continue to see us and work in our lives. And we are grateful for the grace that you have given us today. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. A few days ago, I was out with a friend, and we were sitting together for a few moments, and he asked me the question you ask each other when you do those sorts of things. How are you doing? Not giving it really a moment. I said, I'm well, doing well. And we went on in our conversation, but it was one of those moments I just sort of paused and thought about that earlier question. That question had been asked thousands of times, how am I doing? And I thought 
Well, I wonder if I should mention that we're still in this pandemic or towards the end, hopefully, and that I feel lonely and isolated. And at the same time, I feel like I don't have the energy to really create new relationships or do what is necessary to make life happen. And as I contemplated this question, I thought maybe I should have said, well, you know, our financial difficulties are real in our family, and I'm not sure how we're going to really pay for everything. I didn't know if I should share with him. It was just the anniversary of my father's death, and I felt the weight of that. I didn't know if I should mention the fact that I feel great burden for my three young boys, and I wonder if they're going to be okay, if they're going to develop good relationships and friendships, if they're going to be productive citizens, that their path is going to be one of flourishing. And then I started to consider the things outside myself, things like the horrific violence against the Ukrainian people, the systemic racism, the violence, the homelessness, the inequality, the abuse, the list goes on and on. And so how am I doing? Well, I don't know if you really want to hear. As I contemplated, I think we live in what St. Ignatian's called a time of desolation. Desolation is a season of hopelessness, anxiety, fear. It drives us down the spiral even deeper into our own negative feelings, cuts us off from community, makes us want to give up on the things that used to be important to us, takes over our whole consciousness, and crowds out our distant vision, drains us of energy, and leads us to a place of asking God, where are you? Do you see me? Are you in a time of desolation? Are we in a time of collective desolation? Does God really care? Does he really see? Does God really have the ability to enter into the chaos of our lives and to bring order? Does he know what it feels like to be you? Can he give you hope? And perhaps that is not you this morning, and that's okay, because we all move from desolation to consolation the rhythm of life, but are you in a time of desolation? Are we in a season of collected, collective desolation? Well, <clears throat> I want to look at our te text and ask the question, what does Jesus do in this collective season? And what we see is that Jesus goes into the chaos. He goes to those who are in desolation. And this is what we see in our text. Jesus is in Nazareth, his hometown. And as I said, he just started his public ministry, and he goes into the synagogue, people he knew and people who knew him. And he met these people who they themselves were in a period of desolation. And how do we know they are in a period of desolation? I suppose we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that Nazareth was not a place that was favorably looked upon. Nothing Good comes from Nazareth, as the saying goes. They were under Roman rule. They were limited. They lived under constant threat. And many in that room that day, on that Saturday morning or afternoon, whenever it was, were peasants. They lived in scarcity and lack. And he goes to these people because they were in desolation. They were looking for hope. And he goes to them, and he says 
some words and they were amazed at his gracious words. And maybe perhaps they recognized this up and coming rabbi, this Joseph's son, and perhaps they enjoyed a moment of pride in the hometown hero. And so he goes to these people who are in des desolation. But he knows who he's with, and he knows the mindset of those who live in desolation. And so he responds to them in a way that's probably surprising. He says, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And no prophet is welcomed in his hometown. It seems as if, on the one hand, Jesus recognizes that his hearers have, have expectation of what God does in the life of those who are in desolation. And at the same time, he recognizes that those expectations probably would not be fulfilled. No prophet is indeed welcome into their hometown. And so do you have expectations of what Jesus will do in your life in this season? You know, often in these seasons, I know I do, we look to God to bring a certain set of criteria, to bring some sort of relief, some different emotional state, some answer to our question, some sort of resolve moment. Why? Well, who wants to be uncomfortable? Who wants to live in lack? Who wants to struggle? And so it's perfectly natural to have expectations of the one who promises to do what is necessary to bring peace. And so do you have expectations of what Jesus will do in our life, in your life, in this season of desolation? And then further, do you think it's accurate to say that our perception of Jesus and his love for us is determined by what he does. In other words, do you feel distant from God at this moment? Do you feel like he doesn't care? Do you feel like this whole Christianity thing is a game that you're playing and you're not sure if it works? Is it because he doesn't care, he's not able, or is it because you're not experiencing that which you expected to experience? To say it differently, what needs to change in your life for you to conclude that Jesus loves you? I don't know about you, there are times that I wonder if I'm loved, even if I should expect love from God. And oftentimes, the way I make the decision that I am loved or the conclusion I am loved is because things align. Well, these people who listened to Jesus, they heard him and they were filled with rage. And a rage that pushed Jesus out of their life and of their city. And I think many people push Jesus out of their lives because they are tired of Jesus not doing what they think he ought to be doing. I've been a pastor for a number of years, and I've seen this over and over again, and people who've walked away from the faith oftentimes will say, it just isn't working anymore. I don't see the point. And so they're filled with rage, but perhaps it's not necessarily rage. 
particularly in a post-Christian context, maybe it is more indifference. Sort of that resignation, like, does it really matter? I don't really care anymore. And so we push Jesus out of our life, out of our city. And we just sort of have this mindset, this posture of, I don't really care anymore. But what is at the heart of indifference or rage? This rage that we sometimes express towards God because he's not doing what we want him to do. It's pain. It's pain. It hurts when Jesus doesn't do what you think he ought to do. It does. And is that okay? I believe Jesus can bear that burden, that he can bear the burden of our pain, that we are disappointed in him, that we're frustrated at him, that we just don't think he's doing what we think he needs to be doing. And so I think where we need to start oftentimes is honesty, is honesty before God with one another, because it is honesty that sort of clears the view and allows us to see what we're actually dealing with, what is actually going on in our hearts. And it is this honesty that moves us to resolution. Because God goes to those who are in desolation, he moves into their lives, and he provides his love and presence. And this is what we see in our text. And we see this as we move towards honesty, this openness towards God and this movement further into desolation. And so Jesus tells this, that God moves into those who are honest into their lives and into the desolation. He tells the story of two people who are living in desolation, a widow and a leper. And what he does in their lives is he loves them and provides for them. But what is important to realize is the story he tells are the story of God working in the lives in a way that is outside the bounds of expectations. God's work in these people's lives is other. I won't go into much detail, but what we see here is that Jesus tells the story of how God feeds a widow in the time of famine and how he heals a leper who is isolated, sick, and on his way to death. And what is important, and the point of this that Jesus is making, is that God went outside Israel to work. And this was something that people didn't expect in the Old Testament times, and really perhaps even throughout Christian history, that God doesn't truly go outside the community. But it was certainly the posture that Israel embraced, that God does not work outside the bounds of Israel. And it was not just a posture that Israel adopted. It was a posture that the nations adopted as well as they viewed Israel and viewed the people who considered themselves the people of God, they took on the posture that we are always spectators of God's work and never recipients of it. And yet Jesus shares with us two people, a man and a woman, a leper and a widow, both whom are in desolation, and both who become spectators turned recipients. And certainly the healing was by God's grace, but if we look closely at these stories of God's work in these people's lives who are in desolation, 
we see something very interesting. And they become paradigms for God's work in the life of those who are in desolation. Naaman, he was a leper, and he hears that Elisha could heal him. Elisha was a prophet, and he was known for his miracles. And Naaman was open to God's work in his life. He was open to Elisha. And eventually, Elisha invited Naaman to wash in the river seven times, which he did, and he was healed. But he was open. And as for the widow, she lived in a time of famine, and she had a handful of flour and a jar and a little olive oil. And Elijah told her to just keep making bread, even though she had very few ingredients. And that's what she did. She made the bread every single day, even though she didn't really have the ingredients. She was open to God's invitation. And as we see in sometimes in the Bible, in miracles, in situations like this, though they are recipients of God's grace, they are also participants. They're asked to do the unusual in bathing seven times and asked to do the unwise in using what little resources they have in order to receive God's healing. They were open to God in ways they didn't really expect. That even seemed unwise. That seemed strange. But that openness, that sort of ability to say, I don't have all the answers. My own categories maybe need to be enlarged. My own understanding maybe needs to be widened. This openness led to God's work in the midst of their desolation. In desolation, they let go of their expectation of what healing looks like, what provision looks like, what inclusion looks like, and they open themselves up to the work of God. Are you in a moment of desolation? And do you want God to work in your life? Well, the question is, are you really open to it? Because it might be more or different than what we expect. And being open to God is a challenge. It is a challenge that we all bear. Like you, I met all sorts of people in my life. And there are some people who are more open than others to God's work. But there are some people a particular group of people who understand what it means to be open. Open to truly understanding how broken they are. Open to God's work, even though it may be different or look different than what they expect. And this group, as I have found it, are the recovering addict community. They've come to a place where they realize that openness is the only path to healing. Holly Whitaker writes about her own addiction and her own openness, and she does not come from a posture of faith, but what she says, I think, resonates with people of faith. And let me read this to you, this quote that she writes, as someone who arrived at the place of openness and sort of reinterpreted it towards the Christian perspective. But she writes, when we get to a place of openness, what actually can happen? Life no longer feels precarious. 
are about to crumble, even when it is in fact crumbling. By surrendering to whatever is unfolding and by accepting what is, by giving up on the outcome and allowing life to flow the way it is meant to, by stepping out of your own way and letting that natural order take the lead, you not only get a break from the exhaustion of having to control everything, but you also get to experience life. Instead of what you think life owes you, what life wants to give you, excuse me, what life wants to give is infinitely better than what we think it owes us. And I love this quote because within the Christian framework, we can understand this. This makes sense because I think what is being said here is that what Jesus wants to do in your life is probably infinitely more what you expect to have him do. But it requires openness, a letting go of control, a realization that you really don't have the answers, an understanding that you're probably more broken than you realize, an ability to agree to the fact that whatever you use to bring comfort and peace in your life doesn't really work, and to get to the place where you are finally open, open to God's healing in the midst of desolation, and to be okay with the journey, and to be okay with the destination, wherever that might be. But this is what the Christian life is all about, I think, is this invitation to openness, this ability to realize that in five years, your life might look completely different than what you expect it to be. Your framework might be different. Your conclusions might be different. But what does this require? This sort of open-heartedness, this willingness to let go, this openness to allowing Jesus to move in. And I think what it requires is patience. To love God is to be patient with God. I love the way this passage ends, verse 30. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. I love that passage. Jesus went on his way. He doesn't really answer to anyone. He goes on his way. He determines the location. No one really tells him what to do. He goes on his way. People don't really control him. He goes on his way. That's what he decided to do, and people couldn't stop him. He goes on his way. And there's opportunities along the path that he's on his way that you can be like, well, Jesus, you don't fit my categories, and so continue going on your way. Or you stop, and he pauses, and you allow him to go on his way in your life. But it requires patience. Because ultimately what we are saying is we don't control him, we don't stop him, we don't dictate the terms. He goes on his way. And in a time of desolation, this is extremely hard. Because again, we want resolution, we want peace, we want answers. And so it requires patience to continue walking, to continue hoping. I have a prayer that I'm going to read to you. It's a prayer that I think embodies what is necessary in this season of being open to God in times of desolation. And really this prayer, particularly the first couple lines, are most important. So pay 
attention to those, but, you know, of course, pay attention to the whole thing. Um, but I, I love what this prayer invites us into. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. Only God could say what, his, what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. Above all, trust the slow work of God and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. This patience that we're invited into begins with the understanding and conviction that Jesus is patient with you. Jesus loves you, and because he loves you, he is patient with you. And maybe the goal of life, maybe the goal of desolation is not to get through it or to have some sort of feeling or some place we need to be. Maybe the point is to enjoy and receive the patient love of God and to allow that to strengthen us along the way. Earlier, I invited you to ask the question, do you, as you look at your circumstances, what is it that needs to happen for you to believe that God loves you? What needs to line up for you to believe that God loves you? What needs to happen for you to conclude this is not a game anymore, that Christianity has something to say, that it's a real uh, presence in your life? What needs to happen? And perhaps that's not the question we ought to be asking. Maybe the question that needs to be asked is how can I better understand the love of God in Jesus? How can I better understand how powerful this love is? Why is it that I struggle to believe it? And maybe the journey of life is from moment to moment growing in this understanding of his love, and it is out of that that you, become to, you begin to become a person that is okay with whatever is happening around you, even though the world is falling apart. That you have an internal peace and solitude as you move into life. I said earlier that St. Ignatius talks about this period of desolation, and one of the words of wisdom that he said as well is that most people struggle to understand that they're truly loved by God, even the most godly among us. And what he suggests, and he was a very practical uh, 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 priest giving practical advice to people who worked with him, he said, spend two years every day meditating on the love of God. And perhaps after that two, year, two years, you might understand it a little bit more. And the point is this, is that as simple as it sounds to understand the love of God, it's actually one of the most profound thoughts that we could ever embody or pursue. We don't get it. We don't understand it. But the joy of life, the beauty of life, is that it is a journey of living more deeply into that love 
because it is, is through that love that begins to work itself out that we become people who can live in desolation with peace and hope. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.